Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5. As we begin chapter 5, I want to remind you that there are three principal ways that we can look at these passages. As a matter of fact, it's a real event in the lives of the children of Israel. Prophet Isaiah is writing to a real people during a real time. And that time was a time of crisis. We can also look at prophetically as we move into the very last days. That we know what the world's going to look like. The Lord Jesus himself reminded us as it was in the days of Noah. So it shall be when the Son of Man comes. But we can also look at it applicationally as what does it mean to us tonight? What does it mean to us personally? What is this passage going to speak into our lives? As I was preparing earlier today and as I was outlining, I'm reminded that we have a responsibility. We have a flag to carry. We have a banner to bring, to plant in our world And it's the banner of the Lord Jesus. And so the Lord begins speaking through the prophet Isaiah, reminding us that there's a purpose for which he's left us here on this earth. You're not here tonight by accident. Your life is not an accident. God planted you, he saved you for a purpose. And tonight I pray that as we look at this passage, we can take this very difficult at times passage to hear and and draw from its strength. Because the Lord planted you for a purpose. Would you pray with me? We'll pick up here in verse 1 in Isaiah 5. Father, God, help us to not be a worthless vineyard. Lord, help us to not have wasted your time, your talent, your treasure. Lord, you tended us. There is nothing more you could have done. You sent your only begotten son into this world that the world through him would be saved. And you saved us by grace for a purpose. Lord, that purpose is fruit. And we pray that you would move in your house tonight that you'd minister to us, Lord, as we receive from your spirit your word. Bless your people, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord takes up a parable. It's going to be a parable about his vineyard, which he likens to Judah, which is really the remnant of Israel. Now, to put this into perspective... The children of Israel, the 12 tribes, divided really into two tribes, if you will, during the time of the conquest. And so in the north, you have everyone but the tribe of Judah. And in the south, you have Judah by itself. Judah is all that's left. The Assyrians have come. They've taken the northern tribes captive. They're now looking back at the Babylonians as they're at the door. And Isaiah is preaching to this remnant. And in essence, he's giving a reason why they're in this predicament. He's speaking to them so that they will understand the value of the trials that they are currently going through. And because they wouldn't listen to the voice of the prophet, the Lord actually makes us a little bit of a song for them. In verse 1 it says, And now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Oh, my well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill, and he dug it up, and he cleared out its stones and planted in it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in its midst, and he also made a winepress in it. And so he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. I happen to have grown up here in Southern California in one of the few places in Southern California uh, that used to be almost completely filled with vineyards, and that is in North San Diego County, a little community called Escondido. And when I grew up, Uh, Right outside the door of our house were vineyards. And I can tell you it's a lot of work to maintain a vineyard. It is arduous. It's often done in the heat of summer. It, It takes a tremendous amount of maintenance. And when you plant a vineyard as you would find in Israel, where there's very little arable soil except in the Jordan River Valley... When, when most of the center of the what we would call Israel, what was Judah during that time, the Judean foothills, is primarily rock. And so in order to plant a vineyard, the first thing you had to do was remove the rocks. And this is where the story begins to touch us. Because your life is filled with rocks. There are things in it that will impede your growth. There are things in it that will stunt your fruitfulness. There are things about your life that God wants to remove because he desires for you to be a fruitful field. He wants to plant a vineyard in your life. And so the prophet Isaiah is speaking here of the nation Israel, what is left of it, just Judah... He says, I invested heavily in you, my vineyard. And I did so because I expected a crop of fruit. I believed that all of that work was going to result in something happening. This process in your life and mine of God coming into our lives and cleaning the rocks out, removing the things that don't belong there, tilling the soil, pulling the weeds... And ultimately planting his spirit in us, that process from salvation to heaven is sanctification. And the Lord begins to work in us to produce fruit. In this, Jesus said, is my father glorified that we would produce fruit, much fruit. If you travel to Israel today, very often if you go to a, a kibbutz, you'll, you'll find normally the remnants of some static display of how viticulture was undertaken during biblical times, and there'll be a press. And very often, they'll actually still have the, the watchtower. You see, the vineyard was so valuable to the vine dresser that during the summer months, he lived in it. He abided in his vineyard. Very similar principle is found. Jesus said, I want to abide in you and you and me. God's interested tonight, family. He's invested in us. And he wants to bring forth fruit from our lives. It's so valuable that Christ in you is your hope of glory tonight. The work that God is doing in you right now is to will and to do his pleasure, to bring forth a crop of righteousness out of our lives so that this world would know how much God loves us. God's interested in fruit in our lives. And so... Isaiah speaks in a very wonderful way. And he says, was the vine dresser not fair? Was the vine dresser not just? Was the vine dresser not purposeful and willful in what he did? Did the vine dresser not do everything that could be done? And the answer is, the vine dresser did everything. What more really could God have done for national Israel? And really, what more can God do for us than he's already done? For God so loved us. 
Great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he sent us his son. He's done all that he really needs to do to prove how valuable we are to him. The question is, do you get that tonight? Do you understand? Do I understand? Does the church understand? Everything God did, he did to invest in his vineyard. And as I read the remainder of this passage, I, I, I wonder sometimes if the church in America gets what the prophet Isaiah is actually saying here. What God is speaking to us still to this day certainly applies to national Israel. Because you look back at the history of the Jewish people, it was time and time and time again where God invested in them and they grew weeds. God invested in them and they grew wild shoots. God invested in them and they crawled around in the mud and the muck and the mire of this world and refused to bear fruit for the king and for the kingdom. Verse 4. You see, if you plant a vineyard, you're really not looking for a lot of leaves. That's not the goal. Branches are not the goal. The trunk isn't the goal. The goal is fruit. God wants fruit. He doesn't want leaves and branches. Verse 4, what more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Why wouldn't he invested in you? Or why wouldn't he invested in me? Why wouldn't he invested in his church? Why wouldn't he invested in Israel? Would he have not had the right to have an expectation for us to be fruitful? And the answer is, he has every right to expect fruit. And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. It gets tough from here on out. And I want you to steel yourselves to hear the word of the Lord. Because while you tonight may be in a place where God's not speaking these into your life, he is surely speaking these words into the life of the church in America. He's speaking these words to those who have rejected his grace, his goodness, and his mercy because he's done everything. He's made a way. He's worked in your life. He's worked in my life, the life of his church. He has a right to expect fruit to come forth from his church and from our lives individually. And when that doesn't happen, because God's moral character because his desires change not. Because he is always the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because he is both the Alpha and the Omega. Because tonight as we sit here, he has every right to be expectant of our lives to bear forth fruit. Then he writes these words to an unfruitful vineyard. And so for some of you, Maybe you're in that place to where you're dragging rocks back into the field. Maybe you're allowing weeds to grow up, carnality. Maybe you have purposed in your heart to go a little rogue on God. Maybe there's something going on with you. Or perhaps we can look at this from the standpoint of our nation, our country. Can we not see that we have grown wild branches? And so Isaiah writes to that fruitless vineyard, what will I do? I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. 
And I will also command the clouds that they not rain, rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are its pleasant plant. For we looked for justice, but behold oppression. For righteousness, but behold a cry for help. God was looking for fruit, but he didn't find it. And and the picture here, sometimes we wonder why the Lord has removed his hand of blessing, or sometimes we wonder why we're traveling through that valley. And while it's not always, and in fact, sometimes it is not a negative thing at all, because he allows it to rain on the just and the unjust, amen? He brings good things in the lives of people who don't deserve it, and he allows things that are terrible into the lives of good people. Both are true. But in a sense, as we look at this passage, there's a picture for us to entertain, and I think it's so important that we do this. I believe wholeheartedly that often the church gets lulled to sleep and we stop looking inside. We're so busy, focused on the lives of others and what they're doing or not doing that we forget that it is our branch that's in the mud. We forget that God's actually speaking to me. Jeff, where is the branch of your life? Are you, Jeff, producing fruit for me today? Are you willing to undertake the things necessary to be a fruitful part of the vine? That's a question for us. Jesus in John 15 said, I am the true vine. During the first two verses, and my father is the husbandman. And every branch that in me brings forth fruit, he purges and cleanses that it might bring forth more fruit. God is always looking to make us more fruitful. And the only way that happens is if we allow the work of sanctification to do its job. We let the Holy Spirit walk through the vineyard of our lives and lift up those branches out of the mud and clean the stuff that's there out. Remove the rocks. You see, you can spend a lot of time watering rocks and they're not going to grow. But they will keep the vine from bearing fruit. And so it is for those who entertain these things. For Israel, they had become pagan. They had become idolatrous. They had so left the the care of the husbandman the vineyard was was wrought with weeds and i think sometimes we forget to just simply look and say god what's coming out of my life why is it that there's no fruit it is the word washing over me that cleanses the branches of my life is the Holy Spirit working in me to accomplish, to will, to do the good pleasure of the vine dresser? And for our country, we have stopped listening to the voice of the Lord. We've begun listening to the voice of the rocks and the weeds and the mud and the dirt and the filth. Sometimes that's the cell phones that we carry. What was God interested in the life of Israel? That they'd bring forth fruit. What was God interested in your life and in mine? That we would bring forth fruit. What does he want to do? He wants us to bring forth fruit. So we have a purpose. Sometimes I I talk as... As I'm listening, I'm like, Lord, what do I say? You know, I I sit there and listen to somebody, and they they come to me with the first church of Fox News. (laughs) And they bring forth this spiel that they got from, you know, some godless individual 
that purports because they're wearing a cross around their neck to be a Christian. And they bring me these things and I look and I go, can't you see that that's a rock? Don't you understand that those are weeds? Why is it that you you cannot differentiate between the things of the world and the things of God? And it almost always boils down to a lack of the washing of the water of the word. They just refuse to be washed. Oh, they'll be washed by the, you know, cable news networks. They'll they'll be washed by listening and reading to all kinds of things that they think are going to keep them informed. And then their life becomes fruitless. Oh, they can account for virtually everything that's going on in the world in any given moment, but they cannot tell you when the last time they were on their knees before the holy God of heaven saying, God, cleanse me. Change me. Mold me. Shape me. God is still glorified in us that we bring forth much fruit. John 15, 8. That's still what he's glorified in. Now, it may seem simple to some of you tonight. It may seem like, what kind of goal is that? It is the goal. It is the goal. And so I want to ask you, what kind of fruit is God actually looking for? What kind of fruit is God actually looking for? Because I think it's actually a simple answer to a very complex question question that's found in one word and that word is love what kind of fruit is God looking for from his vineyard brothers and sisters that fruit is love that's why the fruit of the spirit is love And of course, it's joy and peace, and it brings forth these other characteristics. But the fruit of the Spirit is actually love. The fruit of the child that's in the middle of the vineyard in a well-tended spot where the weeds have been removed and the rocks have been taken out and where it's been well-watered and tended by the vine dresser, the fruit of that person's life marked more than any other way is the fruit of love. It's not the fruit of intellect. It's not the fruit of raw knowledge. It's not the fruit of serving God. Those things all have some value in place in our lives. It is the fruit of love. And I want to propose to you tonight that if you look at our world, give me one thing that is lacking more than love. Look at our world. What do we see? We see a worthless vineyard, even in the church. The church has become a place where people are judged, found guilty, and then executed by their own. Where we care more about the dirty details of the mud in someone's life than we do picking up the limb and cleansing it. And it's time for the church to awaken to the truth that God is interested in us being loving. He couldn't care less about so many of the things that occupy our mind, our talent, our treasure. We, We give ourselves, it's like, oh Lord, just make sure I know what brand of missile that was that shot down that jetliner. And people can tell you that. But they can't tell you the last time that they interceded in prayer for a broken brother or sister. They can't tell you the last time that they agonized over their family. They cannot tell you the last time that they sought someone out with whom they had difficulty and spoke into their lives and said, God, forgive me for my part. Let me be your love. A vineyard without love is useless. It's useless. Because God can move rocks without us. He can even make them praise him. 
but he wants us to be to this world what he has done for us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's time for us to waken to the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus and stop pretending that there is some substitute for it. I am constantly engaged with people that will tell you, well, it's my orthodoxy. I have to believe correctly. Or my orthopraxy, I have to do it right. But you ask them, why is it then that there's such a mean-spirited, judgmental attitude that goes with it, and the Lord looks at the fruit and he says, that fruit is rotten. You see, the answers to these things, if we love, we're going to love everybody else the way we love ourselves. Do any of you enjoy being judged? Do any of you enjoy being wounded, castigated, cast down? Do you enjoy being depressed? Of course, the answer to those things is no. And yet we look at the church today and we have to say so much of it is filled with lovelessness. And it's time that we got back to job one and fruit one. Recognizing that the church is filled with people who are wounded branches who need to be picked up. Who need to know that God loves and God cares. Are we lifting up those who are fallen? Are we tending to those who are down? Are we concerned about the needs of others? These are the vine dresser's wishes. This is what God's concerned about. And yes, we have to be true to his word. Yes, our, our orthodoxy and orthopraxy should, should be biblical. But more than anything else, the world needs us to be God's hands of love. It is that fruit that causes his vineyard to be a pleasant place to be. A place where we can look at what God's doing and say, no matter what happens to me, Lord, I know that you love me. You see, God says a vineyard that doesn't produce fruit, he removes his care from. And I wonder how long it's going to be before people who refuse to love see the hand of God come off their life. Churches who refuse to love see the hand of God come off their life. Countries that turn away from the love of God see the hand of God come off their life. I don't want to leave you in a a place of wondering whether God loves you. Of course he does. But he's giving, giving you an opportunity tonight to look at your life introspectively and say, Lord, am I loving? Am I kind? And I ask you to just search your own hearts. I, I can't answer for you. I can answer for me. I can answer for those moments in my life where I look at someone else and I, I can't see their problems because I don't want to see their problems. I can't feel their pain because I don't want to feel their pain. I've become, as John would write, this thing I have against you. You've left your first love. Let's not be that kind of vineyard. Let's not be that kind of vineyard. I would rather have a church filled with people that love one another than a church filled with people who are doctrinally accurate. I would rather have a church that's willing to die one for another 
than die trying to argue proper doctrine. I've always said, you know, when we get to heaven, there's a couple things that are going to happen. I'm going to see a whole bunch of people that I didn't think would be there. I'm going to be missing a few people that I was sure were going to be there. And I'm going to get my doctrine squared away instantaneously. So let's be loving while we're here. Because I'm pretty sure we've all judged some people wrongly one way or the other, either in or out. That's not our job. That's not my job. My job is to tell people about the love of God. And to make sure that they understand what that looks like. And so God now pronounces a group of six woes. And I want to cover them because I think it's necessary. But I also want to, at the same time, just simply ask you to look at our culture, to look at our country. It was certainly true of national Israel, and I, and I wonder if we can't see why the church struggles when we attempt to be like the world instead of like Christ. Verse 8 Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place that they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. For in my hearing the Lord of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard will yield one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield one epaph. We live in a time where the excess food from this country alone that's thrown away every day could feed the rest of the world. We live in a time where we used to get one crop a year and the field would lie fallow. Now we get three crops out of the same field and we wonder why the field no longer produces a crop that's good for us. We wonder why we have cancer. We wonder why we have gluten intolerance. We wonder why we're going through all of these things that we really don't have an explanation for. And we look at the way that we live our lives and we have done exactly what Isaiah said, woe unto them that overvalue a house because it's big. Woe unto them who live door to door and house to house. Now, we are probably the classic example here in L.A. of this very thing. Woe unto them. Our children have no place to play. Fun in my day and time was go out in the front yard and shoot guns because the next house is a mile and a half away. Now the next house is in front of you. You can't get the gun swung all the way around. <laughs> and my dad was in the Navy and he came home from the Korean War. I was born. I was a Korean War baby. The first two houses that my parents bought, you would have paid way less for the first two houses than either one of our current cars. Woe unto them. I think the Lord is trying to speak into our lives about the importance that we place on, on material things. Covetousness, greed, trying to get more instead of figuring out, really do I need this? Is this something that's good for me? Is this good for my neighbor? Is this good for us as a country? I was reading an article today. You know, our interest, mortgage interest rates, they're lower than ever in my lifetime right now. It's a wonderful thing. But you know what's happening? People are just simply borrowing more money. It's inflating the cost of homes. 
Connie and I first got married, if you could save 20 bucks, you could buy a house. Tells you how old we are. At least I am. She was only one when we got married. It was like a child bride thing. Now people have to save for two or three generations to help their children own a home. And so I want to ask you, are are we being a fruitful vineyard by continuing to leave a, a terrible mess to the next generation? I had to tell you a little pet peeve of your pastor. I don't know how many of you have seen this bumper sticker, but it says, I'm spending my grandkids' inheritance. Did you know that that is anti-Christ? That is anti-Christ. Because your Bible says that a good man, a faithful man, leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And yet we brag about not helping our children. About, well, I can afford a house, but you can't. So mine is worth more. So bummer on you, man. And I wonder if the Lord isn't looking from heaven saying to the church, why don't we change some of these things? Why don't we live differently? Look, I'm a proponent of the Walton family living thing, okay? I'm just telling you, I would love to have my kids and grandkids and their kids if I live that long, which is unlikely. Um, But if, if the Lord were to do that, but woe unto them who just simply build more homes and rape the land. We have parts of the Midwest that are about to turn into another dust bowl for this very reason. We have sucked the nutrients out of the soil and we cannot get a crop out of it any longer. That was a problem during Isaiah's time. The second thing. Now the first half of verse 11 is the high schooler's favorite verse. Woe to those who rise early in the morning. But as people often do, they remove it from its context and they forget the other half of the verse that they may follow intoxicating drink. Who continue until night till the wine inflames them with the electric guitars and the keyboards and the full drum kit. No, I'm just kidding. No, with the harp and the strings and the tambourine and flute and the wine are in their feasts and they do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of his hands and therefore my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. It's a warning to the party-hardy lifestyle. The people who seem so focused on pleasing themselves that they can't be pleasing to God. Alcoholism is a threat, family. We have more people die from it in the United States of America than we do from any other thing except heart disease. It is a contributing factor to over 50% of all divorces. It is a contributing factor to over 50% of all fatal car accidents. And yet the church dabbles. The church plays with it. The church looks at it and you've got to give me a reason why I can't drink. Now, Pastor Jeff's going to give you a reason why you shouldn't drink. That one's easy. It's second only to heroin in its addictive nature. There's a good reason. Not, well, you know, Paul used a little for his stomach. Yeah, and Paul lived 2,000 years ago before Tums. I'm sick to death of the church trying to explain away the holiness of God when God makes statements like this, woe unto them who concerned themselves with these things. Family, it's time to do a little introspection. 
that, that drunken party lifestyle. Now here in California, we can add smoke it and toke it to that. It's like, and we're wandering around wondering why our kids are so jacked up. Why our car insurance, our car insurance, our car insurance today, we only have two people in our home, is more expensive than our first house payment. Why? That's why. The church shouldn't have anything to do with it. God's holy people should be holy because our God is holy. It's who he is. He's always been that way. And we try and explain away these things. He said, woe to those who think this is somehow acceptable in the house of the Lord. People are so looking for entertainment and so looking for pleasure and so looking for their fill that it says here that the wine inflames them. It causes them to be so incensed that they lose their minds. That's that first sign. It's the thing that Paul dealt with when he was speaking to all of the church and he said, look, all things are lawful, but all things don't build up. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. Because you can only have one master. And we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and ultimately our strength as well. So church, the fruitless vineyard is concerned about the next microbrew coming out. I've sat down with Christians, and they're like, yeah, did you taste the uh, fat, tire, pale ale? I go, no. What is that? Is that like some juice that comes out of your bicycle? <laughs> and they explain to me, ah, well, this is, br-. and I look at it, what are you doing in there? Oh, well, we fellowship, man. Like, you can't do that any place other than some place that sells alcohol? And you listen to people, and they're, they're making excuses for why they're following after the dictates of their flesh and directly into the world. God says, woe to them. He says, don't do it. Look what happens, verse 14. And therefore, because of these things... Sheol has enlarged itself. People die. He's basically saying they're going to the place where you would rest during that time prior to Jesus setting the captives free. That's where you went when you were D-E-A-D dead. And opened its mouth beyond measure. In other words, the grave opened up and said, come on, bring them in. People die from this stuff. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp. He who is jubilant shall descend into it. They're going, yeah! As they go head on into the bridge abutment. Oh, they're laughing all the way until impact. Don't kid yourself. People shall be brought down and each man shall be humbled. And the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. And God, who is holy, shall be hallowed in righteousness. He says, you know what? You're going to wake up and you're going, you know what? God was right. You know what? God was right. He was right. We should stop defending unrighteousness. If it does not draw you nearer to the cross of Christ and nearer to the likeness of Jesus, then you are being drawn the wrong way. I'm looking around this room. Many of you I know have children. Your children are looking to you to guide them in these things. And if you will not tell them the truth, I guarantee you the world will tell them the lie. I guarantee it. Church, take your place on the wall and refuse to come down for you are doing a good work. Don't be moved. 
and then a lamb shall feed in their pasture, and the waste places of the fat when strangers shall eat. He basically says, look, you're going you're gonna to leave obesity to those who are left behind. People who did not earn your field are going to take it over because you would not flee this lifestyle that will destroy you in the end. Look at verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with the cords of vanity. And this is a picture. It's like there's something bad. We're going to wrap a rope around it and we're going to drag it with us wherever we go. It's like, let me drag around my sack of trash. It's like, I'm going over here. It's like, yeah, I got some iniquity in here. I got some pornography in here. Oh, look at that. There's some lust and some covetousness. It's like, this is awesome. Dump your sack of trash. Get rid of it. You can tell by the smell it's going to hell. It's that simple. (laughs) Let's say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. He said, look, don't be playing with with those things which are not holy. God God wants us to take up his characteristics. He doesn't want you carrying around that cart into our nation that thumbs its nose 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and a God who is holy and says, we don't care what you think. One day they're going to wake up and they're going to go, wow. God meant what he was saying. How about believing and promoting deception and lies? Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's going on our money pretty soon instead of e pluribus unum. Out of the many, one. Now let's stop calling good evil and evil good. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now we live in a day and time when the world wants to mock us for living lives that are pleasing to God. Wants to mock us for believing that there's a creator in heaven that created this world. That this is not the result of random chance processes plus 3.7 Billion years here on this planet to finally get to mankind. 13.7 billion years of astronomical evolution from this singularity exploding called the Big Bang, and all of a sudden, here's all of this order. If you believe that, the London Bridge is still for sale out at Lake Havasu. There is a God in heaven who created this universe. And yet we run around just repeating and puppeting lies and trying to justify somehow why we believe in untruth. That somehow nothing exploded plus chance and time equals systematic order out of chaos. And we said, well, you know, I, well, I just, you know, yeah, my pastor said, but I don't believe that. Look, we need to start defending God. Not that he needs our defense, but he needs us to give him an apologetic. Say, look, this is what I believe. Do you believe that chemicals can organize themselves without the introduction of information and energy? Then you are the idiot. Just being honest here. But we sit around and, oh, you know, God couldn't have possibly created the universe in six days. No, you believe that nothing exploded and got ordered by adding nothing but time and random chance chaos. You see, we allow lies to be told and we do nothing about it. That was the world that Isaiah lived in. Why? Because we don't want anybody to think that we believe what the Bible says. You're not one of those people, are you? 
Look, let me be honest with you. Let me give you a little hypothetical thing here. Let's just say we're going to come up with a mythical organism that has 200 functioning parts in it. Now, if we do a little bit of simple mathematics and we add those parts together, each time we add them together, we double their chances of successive uh, completion of each stage. And they just happen by random chance. And let's say that somehow the energy gets in there and the information gets in there, which we cannot prove. By the time you run these things out, you're talking about 10 to the 60th power over one. We're talking about a trillion, 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 trillion chances in one that you could come up with a multicellular organism by chance. Now imagine for yourself, if that seems unreasonably complex to you, that the molecular parts in a single-celled organism is in the millions. We, we allow lies to be told. We go, well, you know, I don't want to make... Th- I, I'm going to be a religious nut. I am a religious nut who believes that God created everything. Amen? Don't let the lies be told without a defense. I, I sometimes listen to conversations in a sidebar, and it's like somebody sitting there going, well, you know, I don't really believe that the earth was created. I believe in evolution and blah, 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 blah. And then I walk up to him and I said, when was the last time you ever saw chemicals organize themselves? Well, no, that would be a little hard. Well, that's what you believe in. And we could go on and on and on and on with promoting deception and lies. That the church is supposed to be a bastion of truth. John, in his gospel, speaking of Satan, in the words of Jesus, said, You are of your father, the devil. And he said, here's how you get to know who that is. Because he is the father of all lies. And he actually began his reign here on earth by lying. So Isaiah says, woe to them who start promoting lies, promoting darkness, promoting untruth, promoting world systems of religion, You know, I I sit there and talk to people and it's like, well, you know, if if you really study Islam, Allah and Yahweh, they're kind of the same. And Jesus and Muhammad, they're kind of the same. Kind of about like you and E.T. are kind of the same. God loves you. Allah is capricious and he wills to do whatever he wills to do irregardless of who you are. I'm looking for the return of Jesus Christ. I'm not looking for the return of the 12th Iman Mahdi. Who will slay all of the unbelievers. You you see, we have to stop saying that everything is okay. When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, that is exactly what he meant. On one hand, biblical Christianity is the most exclusive group of human beings on the planet, or in the universe for that matter. But at the same time, it's free to all who will ask. It's both the easiest thing you can ever do and the most difficult thing you can ever do because you're going to have to give up control of your life and you're going to have to say, Christ, save me. We believe truth, family. We must promote truth. And this ends with a couple of things that are very easy to see. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. 
Do you think we live in a world that's arrogant? Prideful? Self-absorbed? I, me, and mine is the order of things in our world. The body of Christ, a fruitful field, a loving field should not be that way. And it ends with something that I think for us is particularly poignant because it is something that touches each one of us and that is political nefariousness and injustice. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe who take away justice from a righteous man. And therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, as the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. We have more laws on our books than any nation on earth. And yet we have figured out more ways to be godless than any nation on earth. We're just really nice about our godlessness. It's very sanitized. We package it well. And therefore the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. Now notice what it says. Woe to them. He says, and here's, here's what's going to happen. The anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. And he has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them. And the hills trembled, their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the street. And again, there is an extreme example of this that certainly is yet to come as God brings salvation to national Israel, as the tribulation ensues, as this incredible rescue of God, as, as the church is taken home to heaven and the Antichrist rises and makes a peace treaty with Israel and there are three and a half years of, of unforeseen prosperity in the world, but then the true colors come out. But this is a picture of what we need to be aware of. For all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And he will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and whistle to them from the ends of the earth. And surely they shall come with speed and swiftly. And no one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will the belt of their loins be loosened, nor the strap of their sandal broken, whose arrows are sharp and all their bows are bent. And their horses' hooves will seem like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. And their roaring will be like that of a lion, and they will roar like young lions. And yes, they will roar and lay hold of their prey, and they'll carry it away safely. No one will deliver, for in that day. And so he tells us when this is. Finally, when God says enough, enough, they will roar against them. Like the roaring of the sea, like the one who looks to the land. Behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened by clouds. Until this last, this final woe. I, I wonder if you read that on the floor of our Congress. And you said, Do we honor the word of the Lord? Do we actually care about what God says? Are we really concerned with the things that concern the Lord, or are we just in this for ourselves? And you have a whole bunch of people, oh, I care about the Lord. I'm all for that grace thing. But that righteousness thing, no, I'm not really into that. I don't believe that I should be just. I don't believe that I need to be just. I don't need to be fair. I don't need to be civil. I don't need to concern myself with the common man. After all, look where they are. You know, of course they got that way because they, they lived a life that was deservant of it. Look, here's what we deserve, death and hell. That's what your pastor deserves. That's what I deserve. I deserve the wrath of God, but by his grace, I'll never taste it. He saved me. I've not been appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. Praise God for our Savior, Lord Jesus. Amen.
And this time in this passage can have really two effects on you. And we'll end with this. And it really all depends on one decision. Have you believed and received? Or have you rejected him? Do you know him personally? Is he your savior? Are you therefore clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Or are you still wandering around the field as a dirty vine? Fruitless. Or are you fruitful? You see, I I, I believe that God not only wants us to be fruitful, he is more than able to make us so. He's good. And he loves us. And all these things should be a wake-up call to those of us who already know him, and they should be a warning to those who don't. You see, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's sweet to the ears of the saved, and it is a warning to those who don't know the Lord. If you don't know Jesus tonight, if you're more concerned with these things that were concerning them at the time, you're concerned about that party lifestyle, you're concerned about the wealth, you're concerned about the things that you can possess, you're, you're not concerned about the injustices in our world. If you look at our world and you can say, you know, I really don't think I need to be loving. That is a problem for God. And it should be a problem for anyone who knows him. I I don't personally plan on being here when his wrath is poured out. Because I know in whom I have believed that he is able to keep that which is committed unto him until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. One day I, I know when my life comes to an end, as sure as I'm here tonight, I know where I'm going. Because he promised it. I'm planning on being absent from the body and present with the Lord. I'm going to ask you to stand right now, if you would, please. I'm going to ask a couple of the pastors to come forward. And if you're here tonight, and you can honestly say, man, I I don't know, Jeff. Pastor, I'm not sure. I... I'm not positive whether I know the Lord or not. If that's you tonight, then I would ask you to read this with a a little fear and trembling. If you do know the Lord, then the one thing that ought to be so evident in your life is the love of God in a world that isn't going that direction. Well, for those of you that don't know the Lord, if you're here tonight and you don't know him, I'm going to simply ask you to get up out of your seat and come down front and to pray with one of these pastors that are going to be up here and get your eternal destiny settled tonight. Don't leave this place on the list of those who would look at those woes and go, that's me. Don't be a fruitless vineyard if you're here tonight and you're a Christian. If you know the Lord, then go live like you know the Lord. Be different. Speak the truth. Don't settle for the lie. Allow God to use you in this wretched, messed up place. Because he he wants us to bear fruit. Amen? Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for your grace, your mercy in my life. Lord, help me to be loving and kind and gentle and tender. Help me to be a bearer of truth. Help me to never waver in the face of adversity, to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in that labor, knowing that it is not in vain in you. Lord, as the Apostle Paul would say to us if he were here tonight, let not any of these things move us. Lord, thank you that you're powerful and mighty and strong to the tearing down of the strongholds of the enemy, that no weapon fashioned against us shall prosper. Blessed is he whose God is the Lord, 
And we thank you tonight. Lord, I thank you tonight. We who know you thank you tonight that your grace has set us free to live lives of reckless abandon for you, our king, and for your kingdom. And for those who have yet to know you personally, God, I pray that right now in this moment, as we close in song, that they would be moved by the Spirit to receive that good word, Lord, the gospel, the good news, that Jesus, you came to give us life. You died on Calvary's cross and were raised three days later. And because of that, we can be justified and our sins forgiven, our names etched in the book of life. And so, Lord, bless us as we leave this place. Fill us with your spirit. Anoint us for what lies ahead and use us for your glory. Lord, let us be a fruitful field. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.